Thank you for listening to a sermon from the District Church. For more information about us, please visit www.thedistrict.church. Additionally, if any of our sermons have brought encouragement to you, would you please let us know by emailing us at info at Amen. Go ahead and grab a seat and grab your Bibles in the process. Uh, we're going to be in John. We're going to start out in John 15, uh, and then from there we'll be jumping around a couple of different places. Um, but we are continuing in our series, Abide, um, and today we are looking at, uh, we're getting to verse 9, uh, but within verse 9 we'll be hitting a little bit of verse 12 as well, since both of them tie into each other in this idea of what does it mean to love one another and what does it actually mean to abide with one another as we are abiding with the Lord. And so this is a command that Jesus gives to us in the midst of these 17 verses um, of him talking about what it means to abide with him, he also includes us abiding with one another. And so that is actually a part of the process. It's not something that Jesus just threw in and was like, oh, this would be a great idea. Let's just have them have some busy work and just worry about being in relationship with one another to kind of give me a break from relationship with you. Like, that's not what Jesus is saying. He's, he's saying a part of you being in relationship with me and abiding in me is you abiding with one another and loving and pursuing one another just as I have loved you and pursued you. And so that is within the command of the overall theme of abiding in Christ. And so we wanted to devote um, just one sermon specifically within this series. Um, and there actually, I guess there will be two because the last one also deals with friendship. Um, and so this one and the last one in the series will both really be focusing on what it looks like to um, be in relationship with each other and to abide with one another. So let's get um, John 15 going. And um, like we normally do, we are going to read it out loud. And so we are intimate today. And so let's be loud and proud and read this like we believe this. <laughs> because we do. John 15, picking it up in verse 1, I'll start, um, and, uh, and then I'll uh, back out of it and just so I can hear your beautiful voices. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit.
Father, thank you so much for uh, just the reading of your word. Um, thank you for the access that we have uh, to see your truths. Um, God, it's so easy for um, for us as as a church, as as a group of people, even as individuals, um, to to want to define our world around us, define our own lives based on our own thoughts, our own preconceived notions, our own sin, our own failures, our own successes, um, anything and everything that we can think of that gives us a worldview. It's easy for us to fall into that that rut or, or that idea. Um, God, we're asking today, we're, we're pleading for your Holy Spirit to guide us in the truth, to guide us in understanding your inspired word, that through your Holy Spirit you make known to us, that you reveal to our hearts and to our minds, and that you are using to, um, to help us to change and transform our understandings of the world around us, of the people around us, and even our own selves. And so God, as we talk about love today, and as we look at how you loved us, and how that channels into how we love others god would you please just show us the areas in our lives where we don't do this well show us and reveal to us the areas um, in our life where uh, where we have blind spots that we don't see um, and so that your son can be molded and shaped and formed in our hearts and in our minds um, so that we will begin to see others the way that you see them we will begin to do for others the way that you've done for us and for others. And God, that ultimately you would be glorified and in being transformed to be more like your son, Jesus, we would receive the utmost joy, the utmost gratitude that we're looking for, the utmost satisfaction that we're longing for. And so, Father, we're praying for that in this time and we're praying that you would be honored and glorified. It's in your name we pray. Amen. All right, so those two verses, specifically verse 9 and verse 12, that we're going to be looking at. Verse 9, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Therefore, abide in my love. It's just a command for Jesus telling us, look, the Father and I have a loving relationship in which the Father has been literally from, from eternity past to present to eternity future he and Christ are in relationship with one another in a mutually self-giving relationship of love to one another. And what Jesus is now revealing to us is, I've come to the earth to now share and express this exact same love that I've been experiencing with the Father for eternity past. I am now bringing and I am loving you with that exact same love. Like, that's huge. All right, just to know that Jesus came to earth not to just forgive us of sins, not to just give us a design on how we are to relate with one another, how we are to steward resources, how we are to, to, to be good um, co-workers, to be good bosses, to be good employees, to be good husbands, to be good wives, to be good fathers and mothers. Like It's not just a design or a list of rules or a list of commandments that he came in and said, you do it wrong. Here's the right way to do it. Now abide in these things. It's not just that. Those things are the byproduct of what flows out of him coming and saying, I am loving you. 
I am bringing the love that God has with me, that the Father has with me, that I have with the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit has with the Father, the way in which we interact with one another, I'm coming to interact with you in that exact same way. That's incredible because there's no other religion out there that testifies that God is doing this, that God is coming down to pursue and love us the way in which he loves and pursues one another within the Trinity itself. Every other religion is saying, you have to do these things in order for you to love me. And once you do those things and reach perfection, I will then accept you and bring you in. And that's daunting. Like that's basically, that would be God coming down and saying, we love each other perfectly. So until you get to that place, you will not be able to experience the love that I have for you. That's terrifying. Because then the rest of my life would be devoted to hoping that I get it worked out. Hoping that I get it right. Hoping that when, well, as soon as I pray the right way and read the right way and study the right way and share the gospel the right way or have enough knowledge or have enough theology that's correct, as soon as I get to that place, then I'm just hoping that God accepts it. I'm kind of bringing it to him and saying, Lord, will you accept this? And if you accept it, then I get to experience your love for me. And the reality is, is when, if we were to actually be able to get to perfection that then allowed God to love us, the reality is, is we still have an entire collateral behind us, damage behind us. Um, kind of like when, when you see a meteor, you see the trail behind it. Like this is, we have an entire line of sin behind us that is still separating us from the Father, even if we were able to reach perfection one day in thought, deed, word, action, the entire, like the whole nine yards, affections, if we were to get to that place, we would still have an entire separation behind us that does not allow us to be accepted by God. So that's terrifying. And what he's now telling us in this verse is the perfect love that I have with the Father, that I have with the Holy Spirit, that I have within the Godhead, that perfect love that's been experienced despite anything and everything that you've done, I'm bringing it to you. I've loved you as the Father has loved me. That's grace. That is probably the easiest picture of grace that we will ever see in Scripture. Regardless of what you've done, I'm bringing my love to you. I'm pursuing you. I'm coming to you. This is John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his begotten Son. That he sent Jesus. He so loved the broken world that he sent Jesus so that whoever believes, whoever receives, whoever just trusts in him, whoever just sees him and says, God, you are who you are, then gets to experience the love that he's bringing. It wasn't for God so loved the world that whoever figured it out. God so loved the world that whoever attained perfection, whoever attained righteousness, whoever did all the right things, then got to receive eternal life, got to receive salvation. It's not that. Rather, it's for God so loved the world that whoever believes, whoever receives him by faith, not doing anything, just receiving him by faith, believing in him for who he is, receiving and understanding that this grace that I'm, that I'm getting 
is not based on anything that I've done. It's actually based on everything that I've not done. <laughs> it's based on everything that I've done that I thought was right that wasn't. It's based on everything that I've done that was wrong. Everything is not based on those things. It's rather just based on God's pursuit and love of us. As the fathers loved me, so have I came and loved you. And then he says, abide in that. Abide in that love that I'm offering to you. And all that is is just an invitation of his. He's saying, I, like, I'm inviting you in to abide in this interaction that I'm having with the Father and with the Holy Spirit, and you get to be a beneficiary of that abiding, that love. And then verse 12, this is my commandment to you, that you then love one another in that exact same way. You love one another as I have loved you. I didn't expect anything from you. I want you to love others, not expecting anything from them. I didn't call you to perfection before I came and loved you, so I don't want you to call others to perfection before you pursue and love them. Like this is literally allowing us to be free to not expect others to provide the satisfaction that we want out of a friendship. This is allowing us to be free from that because where are we getting that satisfaction and perfection? We're getting it from verse 9. Jesus has pursued and loved us perfectly. Therefore, we should not be in want of any other type of love and satisfaction from anywhere else because we're fully satisfied in Christ alone. That then frees us to now pursue others in loving them, not expecting anything from them, because we're fully receiving it from Jesus himself. Now, are we going to receive it from others? Absolutely. Absolutely. Are we to call others out when we're not receiving it to a degree? Yes, because that's what it means to be a, the church, rebuking one another, holding each other accountable to seeing it. But I'm not calling it out of you in order for it to be something that I need, but rather I'm calling it out because it's something that you need. Like when we're looking to correct and we're looking to rebuke and hold each other accountable to what it means to live out the design of Jesus is not for my gain. It's for your gain. Like the idea of, let's just take money, for example, the idea of generosity. Genero like we're not asking people to give tithes and offerings because the church is in need. But it's because you are in need of experiencing what it means to be generous. Because that fills up something and that stirs up your affections for the Lord. When you are generous because of what God's provided for you, that completes your joy on what it means to interact with money. Like if we were just to hoard in and just take in all the money that, that we're earning in our jobs and in our careers and whatever, and we were just to bring that in and just say, thank you, Lord, for what you've done, but never were to give we would be missing out on the joy that is to be had in receiving what God has ultimately done for us. Just like, take for salvation, for example. If you were to receive Christ 
And in receiving Christ, you were to then live the rest of your life saying, thank you, Lord, that I have received you. But you were never to give of Jesus to others. You were never to share Jesus with others. You were then missing out on the fullness of what it means to actually be saved. Because it's terminating on you alone rather than others experiencing it as well. And you getting to experience the joy of sharing it with others. That's why Paul so many times says, my joy was made complete because of your coming to the faith. You coming to know Jesus. You maturing in the gospel. So many times he writes to the churches and tells them, you growing in this theology brings joy to me because you're getting it. You're understanding it. You're growing in a deeper and more intimate relationship with Christ alone. That fires Paul up. That completes his joy. 2 Corinthians 5.21, the ministry of reconciliation isn't just for others to get saved, but it also is God looking back at you and saying, don't you see that we are in this thing together? Like you sharing the gospel with someone else is you're now experiencing what the joy that I had in sending my son to you. He's inviting us in to see what this love is all about. So him telling us to love others is he wants us to experience the same joy that God experiences when he sent Jesus to us to love us, to pursue us. And in return, God was not expecting perfection out of us because that's why he sent Jesus. He sent Jesus to be our perfection. So then we get to be brought into that relationship. With this topic, I, I want to turn over to 1 Thessalonians 3, 12, and 13. And so that was a lot of the theology behind why we are to love one another um, because Jesus loved us. I want to now transition to how this actually fleshes itself out. How do we actually love one another, not necessarily expecting things from one another, but loving one another because we've received full satisfaction from him and him alone but also what is our mission in why we are loving one another. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 12 and 13. He says this. This is Paul teaching to the church in Thessalonica. He says, May the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all, as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness, before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. I would say that we would each agree here today that our goal for being here, for being a part of the church, is to have our hearts made blameless and holy before the Lord. Why else are we a part of a church? Like we want to see God glorified and we want to see our joy be made um, be made good like we want to receive joy and God to receive glory and the way that those things happen is for us to become more like Christ right so us becoming more and more like Christ us being sanctified in the process of what it means to be the church is our hearts our minds our affections our wills our thoughts our actions our deeds all of those things to be made holy and blameless before the Lord and God actually instills within us a mission on how that's going to happen. And it's by us increasing 
and abounding in our love for one another. So it's in our love for one another, it's in our pursuit of one another that God uses in order for our hearts to be made blameless and holy before him. It's our interaction with one another. It's our pursuit of one another. It's our making disciples of one another that establishes our hearts holy and blameless before him. It's the vehicle that God uses for him to mature us from one degree of glory to the next. So the difficulty with this is that a lot of times people talk about our personal relationship with the Lord. My personal relationship with the Lord is what makes me holy and blameless. And I'll be honest with you guys, this is going to be kind of a, a, an awkward thing to say, but it's heresy. And I've been there in the past. I've talked about that so many times that what we're after is your personal relationship with the Lord. No, that's wrong. That's wrong. We're not after your personal relationship with the Lord. We're after your public relationship with the Lord. That's what we're truly, I'm after the public relationship with the Lord in which I am now brought into a family of believers that are spurring me on to love and good deeds. That are rebuking me, that are correcting me, that are training me in righteousness. Just as much as you guys need me, I need you. I'm not in this. This is this is not a hierarchy in which we throw a lead pastor up at the top and then he's the one who comes in and channels out all knowledge and all information and all wisdom to the church. Hang out with me for 10 minutes and you'll see that there's wisdom that's lacking. It's true. Like, I need you just as much because your reading and studying in the Word of God can teach and train me just as much as my reading and studying in the Word of God can teach and train you. We are all in this thing together. And this is the way that he's, that, that he's brought it about is bringing us into a family of believers so that disciples can be made, so that interaction can be made. And what this is ultimately doing is this is combating the sin of individualism. The sin that I can do life by myself. That can't happen. We were not created. We were not designed to do life alone. And so really the argument of this sermon, loving one another as he has loved us, is just an argument and push for us outside of a Sunday morning for an hour and a half is to do life together whether that's in missional groups, whether that's in discipleship groups, whether that's in informal groups over coffee tables, over walking on the greenway, the monon, whatever you want to call it. Whatever it is that you can do life together rather than alone so that our hearts can be made blameless and holy before the Lord so that we can pursue one another with the love that he's pursued us so that we can teach and train one another the way that he's taught and trained us. This is what this passage is all about he's structured it this way so many times in scripture you'll see the structure of the church first corinthians 12 talks about it being a body the body has hands and it has feet and it has eyes and it has fingers and it has heart and it has mind it has a lot of different moving parts that have different gifts and has different relationships and it has different um, um, strengths and weaknesses within it but no other part of the body can look at other parts of the body and say, I don't need you. 1 Corinthians 12, it says, the hand cannot say to the foot or the eye, I don't need you. 
We have Josh Gonzalez. I can't look at him and say, you're worthless. We don't need you. Get out. (laughs) He's in. He brings something to the body that I'm unable to bring to the body. And so I need Josh. I need every single one of us to come into this thing to work out your identity in Christ in the way that he's wired you, the way that he's maturing you to come into this thing and offer in an element of what it means to make disciples. He's gifted us that way. And so that's the only way that the church can function is by us needing each other. Individualism is the opposite of biblical covenant community. Individualism came out of the mindset that you can bypass community in order to achieve contentment, happiness, or fill in the blank. Like we, we cannot. I think the thing that, that's going to be hard for us is, and, and you'll probably resonate with this in a lot of different ways, but how many times do you know that a task needs to be done and the immediate thought is, I can do it myself, I'll just do it by myself when it probably needs to involve some other people being involved, like working in it. It needs other perspectives in it. But the, 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 the natural default in us, the tendency is, I can accomplish this by myself, and I don't need the help of others. That's individualism. And individualism has worked its way into the church. I can do Christianity just by myself with my Bible and I, and I can accomplish this thing. I can grow and mature. I don't need the the input of others. I don't need the advice from others. I don't need the rebuke from others. I don't need the correction from others. I don't need accountability from others. I'm smart enough. I can figure it out. Nobody knows me more than I know myself, and so I'm going to do this by myself. I don't need to be involved in groups. I don't really need to be involved with Sunday morning corporate gatherings. I'm just going like, and I'm going to, church online is, is, is not good. It's not good. Now, if you're like on vacation and you're like, hey, we just want to jump in and, and like, that's one thing. But the idea of church online in which I can have church in my bedroom by myself and never incorporate myself into community is not church. That's just a podcast. That's all it is. And I love podcasts. I podcast all the time. I listen to sermons. I listen to music. But that in and of itself is not church. That's just a subcategory under the umbrella of worship in general. I can listen to a good sermon. I can read a good book. I can listen to a good song. And I can worship God in those things. But that divorced from any type of interaction or relationship with others is not church. There's a missing step there. But when I then pull those things into coming together with others and saying, hey, I listen to this song. I listen to this podcast. I would love for you to listen to it as well. We then begin having church. We then begin in the process of what it means to make disciples. I mean, just think about the back front, back porch, front porch model. Back in the day, there used to be front porches is what were designed. 
Houses were designed with front porches to put chairs on them. And why was that? So that you could go out. It's kind of like an extension of the home. It's an extra room. You go out, you sit on the front porch, and when passerbys come are on the, the sidewalks walking by, it's like you want to interact with them. You want to talk with them. You want to invite them into your home. You want to invite them into relationships. You invite in advice from them. This is what established kind of the community, the village mindset that together we live, apart we die. It takes a village to raise a child. Like this is the mindset of, of what they had was, was we want to go out front so that we can see others, so that we can invite in relationships, so that we can commune with one another. And then what came through with the wave of the back porch mindset was, let's now take it from the front porch to the back porch. Let's create our own little kingdom and then let's throw some privacy fences around it so that we hold everybody else out. Because we don't want relationships. We don't want community. We don't want interactions with others. We just want to do life by ourselves. Now, fortunately, back porch is kind of beginning to be redeemed as people are inviting and entertaining and having parties more and more now. But really, I mean, I can think like my high school years, um, there were rarely like interactions with other families that were parties at people's houses. The only time we ever saw each other was at church on Sundays. Community during that time where individualism was running rampant really broke down the efficiency of the church and what it was called to do and be. And so we have to combat individualism. Tim Keller puts it this way. He says, ultimate reality is a community of persons who know and love one another. That's ultimate reality. That's what the universe, God, history, and life is all about. This is if you favor money, power, and, accom and accomplishment over human relationships, you will dash yourselves on the rocks of reality. It's impossible to stay fully human if you refuse the cost of forgiveness, the substitutional exchange of love, and the confinements of community. Because we believe the world was made by a God who is a community of divine persons who have loved each other for all eternity. You were made for mutually self-giving and other-directed love. Self-centeredness or individualism destroys the fabric of what God has made. So essentially what, what he's saying there is if we neglect community, we then neglect to be the image of God. If we seclude ourselves, we then sin against the way God designed us to be. And so it's important for us to see that and to push against what our natural bent is, is to, to be by ourselves. Even though we long for community, we want to be by ourselves. We have to push against that and begin to pursue others so that God is glorified and we receive the joy that is in that. Two ways that I want to close this out. Ephesians 4, 4 and 6 is the theology of us interacting in a community in the same way in which God interacts in a community. Ephesians 4, 4 and 6 says this, There's one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. You see a theme in these verses that oneness is key. 
Seven times the word one is used in these verses. There's one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. And all of this derives from the one God who is the father of all, which translates creator, sustainer, provider, protector, caretaker, fill in the blank. He's of all, in all, through all. This is God to us. And he exists in a community. He exists in the Godhead. So if it's important for God to exist in a community, it's important for us to exist in a community. Because if he created us, that then woves in the fabric of who we are and what we're designed to be. Our DNA longs for community because our creator exists in a community. It's the fingerprints, the image of God bared on us. And you see that in this. If I were to read it backward, it would, it would read like this. You'll see that the community of the church is directly tied to the community of the Trinity. The one God in three distinct persons. The one Father creates the one family. The one Lord Jesus creates the one faith, hope, and baptism. And the one Spirit creates the one body. So we have the Father who creates the family who adopts in the entire church. Everyone who exists that comes into the believing faith, the faith of Christ, Understand, living under the banner of the gospel, the Father is the one who creates that family by adopting and calling and drawing us to himself. And then out of there, Jesus is the one who then creates the way for us to actually interact into that family, engage into that family by producing the one faith, one hope, and the one baptism. Jesus in, it, it ultimately creates that opportunity. And then from there, the Holy Spirit is the one who breathes life into it by creating the one body to flow. So it's like God establishes it, Jesus comes in and creates it, and then the Spirit gives life to it. Just like in uh, Pentecost when, they were, when Peter was preaching, the Holy Spirit fell on every one of them, he finally came in and gave life to the church, and the church was ultimately born in that moment when the Spirit came in and gave it life. How then does this community function? How does this community work together? Acts chapter 2, verses 41 and 47. This is a widely known, widely used verse when, when you're talking about church in general. And this is right after 3,000 people were saved at the preaching of Peter. Um, this is at Pentecost. We're following it. 3,000 people get gathered into the church. Before those 3,000 people came into the church, there were around 120 believers at this time um, after Jesus' ascension. And then 3,000 are added. And this is what it says. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers, and all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. A couple of points um, to see from this passage. First, God established the, the church to teach and receive the word of God in community. 
you see that it says, after they received the word of God, that he began adding numbers, that he began adding people. So it's the preaching and proclaiming of the word of God that ultimately expands and grows the kingdom of the church. Like, it's no strategy, it's no marketing strategy on our part. Like, we can't just throw out thousands and thousands of flyers with the name of the district church on it and just hope and expect people to show up and get plugged in. But rather, it's through us individually and corporately going out and loving others as he has loved us. How has he loved us? How did Jesus come in and interact with the 12 disciples? He didn't go and create a booth and just set up shop and put gospel on the top of it and just hope that as people were walking by that they would stop in and say, hey, what are you selling? Like, I want to jump on board with this. Oh, this is some Ponzi scheme, so now let me begin selling it to others as well. Like, like that's not what he was doing there. But rather what Jesus did was he came in and he pursued. He says, hey, I want to come and I want to be in relationship with you and I want to be in relationship with you and I'm going to come over and be in relationship with you. And, oh, you're a fisherman. I'm going to, te- I'm going to teach you to be a fisher of men. I-, I want to show you what I'm doing with you. You're going to do for others and we're going to establish and build the church off of this. So Jesus came and pursued and in pursuing, he shared the word with us. And we see that in John 1, the word became flesh and dwelt among us and shared himself with us. Jesus shared the word with us. And we then, in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, we, we take that word to others in the ministry of reconciliation. So we spread the word to others, and that's how the church grows, adding to their number daily those being saved. It also says that they devoted themselves to the apostles, teaching and the fellowship. The word fellowship there in the Greek is koinonia, which means community, which means intimacy. This isn't just them coming together in a corporate gathering. This is them coming together in smaller groups and homes. Like, how do you gather 3,000 people and break bread in homes? Like, I I can't think of a house in first century Jerusalem that could house 3,000 people to where they could break bread amongst 3,000 people and be combined in one accord. So what they had to do as a church was gather across the entire city in homes, breaking bread with one another and sharing the word of God with one another. Yes, they had the temple gatherings and they would go into the theaters and they would would have corporate gatherings. But at the same time, daily what they were doing was gathering in homes, sharing the word, sharing the gospel, sharing life with one another. We see that Paul talks about this in 1 Thessalonians 2.8. Having an affectionate desire for you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel, the apostles' teaching, but we were also willing to share our very lives coming together in community because you've become dear to us. So those two things have to happen in order for us to abide in love in one another just like he's abiding in love with us. We have to share gospel and life with one another in smaller groups not just corporate gatherings. And then the next part, kind of, and really, I'm going to close out with this. Romans 12 is really a list, just a list of ways in which we can pursue one another in love. And this is, it, it looks like a lot of do's and don'ts. But the reality is, is we're free now in the gospel to live out do's and don'ts. 
Like that was one of the kind of foundational pieces that we talked about when when starting this series in abide is there's commandments attached to this. There's pursuit attached to this. But the beauty of abiding in God is that it's not a pursue me, then I'll accept you. But rather, it's because I accept you, you'll now pursue me. It's because I've forgiven you and I've extended righteousness to you. I've given you, I've deposited the righteousness of Christ in your life. You are now free to pursue me. And in that pursuit of me, I know that there's going to be tons of failures, but I'm not going to see you as a failure. I'm going to see you as my son, Jesus. And so this list of do's and don'ts is we're not going to nail this perfectly every single day. I'm not going to love you guys perfectly every single day. You might get one day a week. <laughs> like it, but it's going to be a on and off pursuit of one another in which as we are seeing God's pursuit of us, it's changing and transforming us to pursue others with the love of Christ. And as we grow and mature in that, it becomes the beneficiary of others that they then receive more and more the love of Jesus himself. And so Romans 12, I'm going to read through this um, beginning in verse 9. This idea of what Paul is doing to unpack this love that we are to extend to one another. He says, let love be genuine. Let me just pause on that one because it really is kind of the intro to the rest of, of this idea of loving one another. Let love be genuine. Let me just let it be without hypocrisy. Let it be without hypocrisy. So here's one of the problems that a church can fall into if it's not careful. It's not hard to learn Christianese. Right? Like, it's not hard to go through the motions of church. I've seen, I've seen friends, I, I've seen friends that were best friends of mine at times, who I've walked through church with from my high school years, my college years, and they've learned how to do church, but never to actually be the church. They, they've learned what it looks like to raise hands in a service. They've learned what it looks like to say the right things at the right time. They learned what it what it looks like to pray a prayer that everyone else thinks is a mature prayer. It's easy to learn the things of church, but never actually be connected into the reason why we're at church, and that's to abide in a relationship with Christ. And so we have to caution ourselves. Let love be genuine. Let your relationship with others be genuine. You're not doing it out of obligation because I feel like it's the right thing to do, but you're doing it because of God's pursuit of you. What he's done for you produces in you wanting to do that for others because it grows in you. Like, I, 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 I never grew up just thinking, man, it would be great just to sacrifice my life for others. That sounds like an a, a noble task. I would love to just do that. No, it's always been, I, what, do I, what can I do to get from me? What's mine? That's what I want to accomplish. That's what I want to do. What leads me into wanting to sacrifice my, li- my life for others is constantly going back and seeing Jesus do it for me. Seeing Jesus sacrifice his life for me. Seeing Jesus in Philippians 2 
empty himself of his divine attributes in order to take on the role of a human sinner in order to then be nailed to the cross and to take every single one of my horrible thoughts, my horrible actions, my horrible deeds, my failings and failures, he nails to himself so that he can give me all of his perfection and righteousness which then allows me to then receive the love of God. Seeing Christ do that for me leads me to now want to do that for others. Because my natural bent is always going to be, how can I increase my own gain, my own wealth, my own happiness, my own whatever? Because that's what sin is. Sin is selfish. Righteousness is selfless. Righteousness is saying, I want the good of others, even though it might lead to my death. Whatever that might be. The generosity, just being generous. So maybe death, maybe sacrificing your life is a bit strong, but just generosity of others. It's always easy for us to say, how much money can I get in my bank account? But seeing Christ pour out His resources and life and laying it down and being completely generous to others like if if jesus has the power to be able to take a loaf of bread and some fish and multiply it into feeding five thousand people it's easy for him to enter into a relationship with zacchaeus who has a ton of wealth and say hey let me multiply your wealth i'm now going to establish my own portfolio i'm going to manage your wealth and i'm going to get super rich Jesus had all access to be the wealthiest human who has ever lived because of his power. And what did he do with it? Let me take some bread and some fish and I'm going to multiply the wealth of this food and I'm going to distribute it to others because I want them to see it. I want them to experience my grace and my generosity because in that it provides the opportunity for them to receive me. Jesus was the selfless person he's ever met. And so by seeing his selflessness, like it, it makes me want to, yeah, I, I, I would love to, to increase our, our material wealth here, but in that increasing of material wealth, I want to be able to give to others because I want to see the joy on their heart of receiving something that comes from God so that they have an opportunity to receive a relationship with Jesus. Like That's our heart. That's what we want to see happen. And so let the love be genuine, not out of obligation, but let it be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. How can you love with brotherly affection if you're not in a community of believers? Outdo one another in showing honor. I love that one because it kind of makes it a competition. Like outdoing one another and showing honor to one another. Like I'm going to compete with you on expressing my thankfulness for you. I want to compete with you by expressing how much I care about you and appreciate you and what you do. Like I hope, and, and again, I know I'm not great at this, but I hope that 
like my 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 goal and it's not for my gain but i want people to say like Dwayne just he encourages me so well and i know that's not something that is known of me but i want that i want to pursue that i want people to 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 not see that for my gain but to see it because of christ in me that he is a encouraging guy that he's seeking to do as much as possible in loving and pursuing others and showing appreciation verse 11 do not be slothful in zeal but be fervent in spirit and serve the lord rejoice in hope and be patient in tribulation be constant in prayer contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality how do you know the needs of others if you're not in community with them well i receive an email no no like The best way to know the needs of others is by pursuing them and and being interested in their story, not just sharing your story. Asking questions about the other person so that you can see into their life and, and know better how to love them and encourage them. get into the lives of one another and meet each other's needs emotionally, physically, and spiritually. Verse 14, bless those who persecute you. People in the first century weren't persecuted because they believed in the gospel. They were persecuted because they proclaimed the gospel. There's a big difference there. People in first century weren't, like, you could believe in weird things. That was okay in the first century. That's what Mars Hill in, in Athens was all about was anything that just sounded strange, let's come up and let's just discuss it and talk about it. And if you want to believe that, that's great. You can believe that and go on your merry way. What the, the disciples were constantly persecuted for was proclaiming to others that they needed to believe in this gospel as well. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. How do you know when to celebrate with those around you if you're not in community with them? Weep with those who weep. How do you know when to mourn with those who are mourning if you're not with them? If you've never been on the receiving end of a phone call from someone whose life has just been devastated, then maybe you're not deep enough in the relationships of the people that are around you something to think about live in harmony with one another do not be haughty that's not like attractive it's a different version do not be haughty do not be arrogant but associate with the lowly don't just share life with those of your same phase of life be with those who are different than you regardless of socioeconomic status regardless of skin color age or gender associate with others who are different and I know that's hard for us as a church because we're 25 and white. <laughs> like that's pretty much the average. And so we have to, as a church, pursue outside of our community those who are different than us. Never be wise in your own sight. The best way to know whether or not you are wise in your own sight is by others saying, hey, bro, uh, you are a little arrogant. <laughs> you are a little prideful in this. You are you are exercising. You, you're just calm down. 
All right. Like we need the accountability of others because the reality is, is we all have blind spots. And by definition, you can't see it. And we need others to call it out. Live in harmony with one another. I already said that one. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Are you someone who promotes unity within the body or are you promoting dissension? Community is only as intimate as the unity of its bond. Church, like we have to be unified. Or as a word I made up one time, unified. Combination of unite and unify. Like, anyway. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Like, at the end of the day, God's going to take care of everything. We don't have to be the savior of every person. God is the savior of every person. We're the messengers who are proclaiming his message, not our own. I think you should do this. No, no, no. Let God do that. But rather, I think this is who Christ is. And I think you should become more like him. The rest of the stuff works out between them and God. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. That doesn't mean do a nice gesture for someone in order to just be the better man. Like the idea of pursuing others that you are in conflict with to somehow smite them is not Christ-like. Like the goal isn't to heap burning coals on other people's head. That's God's role in convicting them based on your generosity towards them. But our kind of route towards that is let me love them and pursue them, not expecting anything in return from them. I'm not expecting an apology. I'm not expecting them to then um, come and mow my yard. I'm not expecting them to do anything for me. But rather, I want to do for them because of what Christ has done for me. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This is just a long list. Among hundreds of lists and commands in scriptures of what it means to love and pursue one another in the way that Christ has loved and pursued us, in the way in which he's, in which we abide in our love with him and we experience the way that he continues to pursue and love regardless of how many times we have failures in it. This allows and frees us to be able to do that for others. And so remember, every single person in here is here because Christ himself fed his enemies. We're here because Christ pursued his enemies. I was an enemy of his, and he pursued and loved me. It's easy to do this for friends. It's easy to do this for people who agree with us. It's easy to pursue and be in relationship with those that we enjoy being in relationship with. Like, there's sometimes, and I joke about this at times, where there's like, there's people that I can hang out with and enjoy, and and this is just a friendship. It's kind of like a rest and vacation. And then there's times where there's people that I hang out with that I'm like, this is work. I'm going to clock this in. Like this is, this is me having to pour out my energy in order to 
hang out and be with this person. And no one in this room, so you're good. But like it, it, it just, and anyone who might listen to this, um, but you just, you, you understand. You get it, all right? But that doesn't mean that we are to not pursue and love because we've seen what Jesus has done for us. Do you think we annoy Jesus at times? Yeah. Just look at the 12 disciples. I mean, Jesus called Peter Satan one time. I mean, like, right after he called him the rock. Not the rock like Dwayne Johnson. Like, he just called it like, you are Peter the rock, and on this, I will build the church on this statement of you saying, I am the Christ. And then just a few sentences later, Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. <laughs> and so, like, yes, there's going to be times where we nail it, and then there's going to be times where it's like, oh, I can't see you for at least a week. But like, but we're still in pursuit of one another because we are abiding in one another as we are abiding in our relationship with Jesus. And so don't forsake the body. We need each other to grow in the gospel and to mature. We need to plug in the community, plug into one another. We need missional groups. We need discipleship groups. We'll be kicking those off again coming up in August 6th in just a few weeks. Don't neglect those. Connect in to those. And together, as we see Christ in the scriptures, let us treasure him. Let us proclaim him. And ultimately, let us be transformed by him as he makes us more and more like himself. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your pursuit and, and love of us. Um, God, we've done nothing to deserve that. We've done nothing to earn it. God, you pursued us on your own initiative. And we are merely the beneficiaries of your love. And God, I'm grateful for that. I'm grateful for the fact that there was nothing that I had to do to earn it. There was nothing that I had to, to do and accomplish. This, this wasn't like a game in which I had to get past certain levels before you would ultimately award me with a prize. God, this is simply you seeing us as sinners who were desperate, who were helpless and hopeless, and you sent your son Jesus to us. And by sending your son Jesus to us and by him taking our sin and, and placing it on himself and giving us his righteousness, it allows us to be able to come into a loving relationship with you. And so, God, we want to praise him for that. We want to adore him for that. We want to honor and worship Jesus for who he is. And that is the mediator between us and you bringing us into the family, adopting us into the family, allowing us to have access to all the blessings that are in Christ and Christ alone. And so, God, we thank you for that. And in that process, we thank you that it's not just been us by ourselves, but it has brought us into a family of believers. It's brought us into a community with others in which we get to share life and we get to share the gospel with one another to be able to grow in our affections for you, to be able to grow in our understanding of who you are. And so God, thank you for doing that. 
Thank you, Lord. And as we enter into just this time now of reflection and communion, God, I, I ask just simply that, um, that we would sit in, in the reality of what you had to do to make this, to make this happen for us. Jesus had to separate himself from the divine community. And the Father had to turn his back on Jesus and pour out his wrath on Jesus in order for us to be able to be brought in to the family. And so as we partake of communion, let us remember the body that was broken and the blood that was shed. Let us see that as the symbolism and sign of Jesus' love for us. And let it also be an example to us that we are to take up our cross daily, that we are to sacrifice our lives. As Romans 12 starts out, that we are living sacrifices. It may not be physically breaking our bodies and shedding our blood, But it is sacrificing our time and our money and our resources and our energy. It's sacrificing those things in order to pursue and love others around us. So God, let us remember that and let us honor you as we take communion and remember the sacrifice you made to bring us into the family. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to a sermon from the District Church. For more information about us, please visit www.thedistrict.church. Additionally, if any of our sermons have brought encouragement to you, would you please let us know by emailing us at info at